0: When you go back into into these uh, traditional forms, uh, you realize that, of course, they are extremely sophisticated. They offer uh, insights that are very hard to come by. And they can transit multiple spaces, they can transit multiple times seamlessly without a contradiction. And that kind of fluidity uh, and complexity is is, uh, so powerful because it becomes so close to what real life uh, actually seems to be.
1: Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Qasimi, I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, thinking historically in the present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and how their project speaks to our current moment. Over the next half an hour, we're going to be finding out what makes their work important and why it's relevant to us. Today, we have with us Delhi-based artist, Amar Kanwar. Hi, and welcome to Biennial Bites, Amar. It's great to have you with us. Hi. Just to introduce Amar to our listeners, Amar Kanwar has been making films and multimedia works for over 30 years. His work often explores the politics of power, violence, and justice. Though they draw from zones of conflict and installations, his installations are characterized by a poetic approach to the personal, social, and political. What are the ways through which cinema can seek the truth and respond to the times? In a world where evidence has ceased to matter, what is the role of the documentary? These are some of the questions that Amar's work compels us to ask. We've known each other for quite a long time now. Yes. And have uh, many memories in various cities. Chickenfish. Yeah, Tikka. Yeah, I think we've crossed paths through many people, through many projects. From your project in Sharjah Biennial 2011 To your project in 2013 in Sharjah, but also uh, spending time in Addis Ababa and more recently in Istanbul, where you co curated the Istanbul Biennial. Yes. As I mentioned, you were part of Sharjah Biennial 2011 and 2013, and we're thrilled to have you with us at this Sharjah Biennial. I wanted to ask you about growing up in Delhi in the 70s and 80s. So, what propelled you towards being an artist and filmmaker, especially one whose work is so critical of nationalism?
0: I grew up uh, partly even in my early childhood was in Kerala and Bombay. And then most of the rest of the time was in Delhi. And I had no intentions or desires to be an artist or a filmmaker or anything of that sort. And I think I was just like rolling along. Even when I switched into, you know, into university, I, I studied history, but I had again no Intentions of studying history. I was fortunate to actually walk into a very exciting college with a very exciting department. I met many interesting people, and I think for me that was the turning point. Just exiting out of school and walking into a community of people who were thinking and arguing and learning and sharing and and so on. And I think in 1984 there were the anti-Sikh killings that took place across the country, more particularly in Delhi, which I witnessed. Following that, there was just a month later, the Bhopal gas tragedy took place. And again, many people died and were killed in a sense. Uh, both these events uh, actually shook me uh, as a young student quite a lot. I got involved in several efforts related to both these events, from relief to campaigning to many other things. And uh, subsequently, I uh, you know joined up and started to work uh, with a with a group of engineers, actually, and volunteered to work with them who who were working on various ecology, labor, politics issues in central India in the coal mining area. And so so before I really knew anything, I I found myself in a coal mining area, meeting many miners, going underground. Again, at that point in time, film or art or anything of that was not in my mind at all. I just look for a space where I could, uh, or something to do, which gave me more space actually. And it, it just pops up that, you know, doing film uh, or entering into this area would give me more space to think and do, do, do what I possibly want to do. I made several documentaries and films of various kinds um, through the 90s. I could say that, Even though I was making many films and several of them were being broadcast as well. uh, But they were all, I would feel quite acutely dissatisfied with them. And it, it just continuously didn't feel right what I was doing. In fact, at one point I quit after about a year or two of doing this. I quit for a couple of years and then came back. I think I came back mainly just because I needed to earn a living. After a period of time, I even started feeling that there was something kind of ethically wrong with what I was doing Uh, and the manner in which I was doing, the manner in which I was trying to make meaning. I would probably say that it's it's maybe came more from my own desire to reduce, you know, the pain and discomfort of making films like the way I was doing, that I was, I started to search for another way and I, I got the opportunity to do a season outside again. Uh, and again, I mean, that was again for the probably the first time that uh, I was totally free, almost like the carte blanche, that you know I could do whatever i wanted I, uh, I I do remember that I was quite convinced that this would be my last film in ninety seven and so I felt that if I was going to be making my last film and then finding another profession, I might as well do it exactly the way I want to do it. however, Ridiculous, or so terrible it may turn out to be. So it was these kind of circumstances that pushed me towards, uh, you know, moving out from formats and templates that we were kind of given and were operating within uh, to look for other ways of, of, of telling, uh, whether it's through poetry, through essay, through abstraction, through silence and so on. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's really how it started.
1: In, um, as we discussed earlier, this isn't your first time at Sharjah Biennial. You showed the torn first pages in 2011. And in 2013, the Sovereign Forest, which was um, commissioned for a documenta curated by Karlo Christoph Krzysztof Um I remember meeting you there with Yuko Hasegawa, deciding to bring it to Sharjah, where we showed it on, on Bank Street. Can you tell us a bit more about those two projects?
0: Yes, I mean, the Tonic First Pages, again, you know, if I, when I look back, uh, and this was, uh, I think, around 2003. The first thing that I would say about the Tonic First Pages, which is about the democracy movement in, in Burma. Um, and I happened to uh, make friends with um, uh, Burmese activists who were living in Delhi at that time. Uh, that prompted me to learn a little bit more about the Burmese resistance. And uh, when I uh, got to know a little bit more, I was quite upset uh, apart from what was happening in Burma and had been happening over several decades. But what was really upsetting for me was that how little I knew uh, about this. This was four, five decades of the most uh, incredible students movement you could find, uh, hundreds of people in prison. But you know, relentlessly carrying on and on and on, resisting the the military. Uh, and I had you know lived through uh, through the eighties and the nineties, uh, and uh, without really in any way knowing about it uh, in depth, uh, leave alone doing anything about it or even you know participating in any way I could to support it. So this, uh, you know, it, it, I felt uh, quite embarrassed, actually, you know, about my own ignorance at that time and, uh, and was very moved by what I, what I heard and, and the people I met and the way they managed to uh, kind of preserve their spirit. And uh, I think that's what triggered me to do this. And it just so happened that around that time, Supreme Head of the Military Dictatorship General Tan Shui, was suddenly invited to, to India. and. Uh, Again, with reference to your earlier question in terms of you know, questioning the nation state, I found it um, you know, horrific that the Indian government was inviting you know perhaps the most brutal dictator at that point in time. Uh, not only were we inviting him, but we were uh, actually partnering him. I felt that there was a need to respond to this visit, uh, no matter how insignificant the response would be. Also, at that time, uh, when I looked around for support for doing uh, work uh, on Burma, I found that, uh, you know, most of the institutions who would support anybody making work on it outside, you one needed to, you know, present a certain kind of story. It needed a certain narrative, and that kind of narrative would get production support or commission support. And... I, I, I was not comfortable making that kind of narrative, uh, essentially to get support. So I decided that I would just uh, you know, start working on my own in bits and pieces and do whatever and see where it takes me. And so the first film I did uh, with a lot of difficulty was about the visit of General Tanshwe. Now every head of state who comes to India, they have to go to the funeral site, uh, the cremation site of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And to the memorial and pay their respects. And so this was also quite a preposterous thing to see uh, General Tan Shui go, go to Gandhi's uh, cremation site. so the first the, the first film I made was about his visit there. And subsequently, uh, whenever I could, I began to film in in different in different bits, different aspects of the democracy movement in exile. The tong first pages, in a sense, Brings all of this work over a few years. I filmed in India. I filmed in Europe. I filmed in the United States. I heard of um, a bookshop owner Utante, in in Burma who was. I think they brought it back now, but there was a law in in Burma that uh, stated that you needed to every published book of any kind, be it the yellow pages or a comic or a newspaper, in the daily newspaper every every morning as well. Uh, needed to print on its first page, a set of statements released by the Burmese military. And uh, if you published even a comic or a storybook or a love story, without that, those statements on the first page, um, your publication would be banned, uh, you could be imprisoned uh, and your press could be closed, etc. So this bookshop owner, and it was a well-known bookshop owner, and he, um, at one point, um, I suppose found it very difficult to, do, to accept this. And it was a kind of a totally anonymous, I would say, a personal act of defiance, of, of great risk, uh, that he began to tear out the first page of these books that he was selling without anybody knowing, in a sense, quietly. And uh, after a, a few years, he, it was discovered and he was arrested and sent to prison for several years. It's, a, it's an amazing story, no doubt. But what really struck me was that uh, you know the consequences of doing something like that are so severe. It's not just on him, but his family, his children, his friends. Everybody could be imprisoned, and so he, and he knew that, and and everybody knows that inside Burma. So, in spite of uh, the uh, incredibly difficult and horrible consequences, I think he was compelled, and he needed to resist and find a way to resist, uh, and 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 he wasn't resisting it in a public way. He was not like a leader of a, of a struggle that it was difficult to arrest or put behind bars or something like that. It was completely anonymous, completely autonomous. Uh, it was his own resistance that he felt uh, necessary to do regardless of the consequences. And I found this, uh, of course, extremely inspiring, but I also found it very difficult to understand how somebody could take this kind of risk. Where does somebody find the courage to do this? And what is the meaning of this strength and courage? And I think, in a way, that just this story kept me going, and I kept on meeting different uh, Burmese activists of different ages, uh, you know, from 16 to 85, all across the world, but not filming it as one coherent stitched narrative, but filming it in bits and pieces. And uh, to conclude, I would just say that the Tongue First Pages became a bringing together of all these little films sometimes clear and sometimes not so clear. But when these pieces come together and they crisscross, I mean, there was, ar- there was an archival section, there was a present section, there was, uh, and so on. So, I mean, when these, these things came together into three parts, they all fell into the town's first pages as an old to kotante and the bookshop owner.
1: Yeah, even in, the way they were, uh, even in the way they were installed, I think that was such a yes. beautiful and uh, very moving installation. Our listeners will now hear a clip from the torn first pages. One more, say, one more. One more, say one more. The Sovereign Forest, it's another uh, major installation that uh, is uh, kind of in, imprinted in many people's memories of Sharjah Biennial uh, 2013. Can you tell us more about that project and how it came about?
0: I mean, I had been working in eastern India in Ursa, uh I think the first time I went was in 96, 97. And, uh, you know, uh, working on, on the issue of ecology, land, agriculture, mining. The Sovereign Forest is an exhibition. It's a pretty large exhibition and keeps growing. Uh, it was not, it, I had not imagined it to be an exhibition. I wanted to tell the story of what was happening, you know, in a way that I could somehow get under the skin. Somehow I could slow down. Uh, you know, how could I understand, you know, the loss that was happening, whether it was human, cultural, or the land. Uh, somehow I just, I felt that I was, you know, not being able to actually explain or show or tell. And I did uh, a, a short film, a love story uh, first, uh, again, to, to try and find another way of filming and another way of telling stories, which seemed to work a little bit. And then that led me on to make another film called The Scene of Crime. And at that time, I felt that before I get into the complexity of issues, Uh, that we are all familiar with on the question of land and extraction and repression. Uh, Let me uh, find a way to at least first go right to the beginning. And the beginning was to look at the land, to look at the land, to look at the water, to look at the trees, to look at the leaves, to see what is it that is uh, being destroyed prior to it being destroyed. What is actually going to get erased? And in that process, would I be able to find another way of looking, uh, another way of telling? And in, and so that's, and and so just like you, uh, when you're investigating a crime, and especially a crime that has such a wide spectrum or multiple range of impacts, pretty much everything—on people, children, marriages, food, life, soul, eating, livelihoods—everything uh, gets destroyed when you mine a, a region, or everything gets destroyed when you erase a forest. How would I understand all that? So I, I felt I needed to, you know, go to the scene of crime and see what is it that I find there? What is the kind of evidence that I can find? And uh, one of the things that compelled me about this also was that I felt that everybody knew, really. When the crime is so visible, the impact of it is also so visible as to what it's doing. Uh, you know, Why does it continue? And maybe we're not using the right tools to understand or to look first and then to understand You know, I mean, you have a crime, you have evidence that's collected, acceptable evidence is is admitted into court, unacceptable evidence is rejected. The admissible evidence is analyzed, uh, an analysis and a judgment is passed on the admissible evidence. All of that happens in any crime, and yet it continues. And uh, so I thought perhaps maybe our methodology of assessing what is admissible evidence itself could be wrong. What if the definition of what is admissible is wrong? What if there was another way of searching for evidence that uh, revealed, uh, you know, m- multiple insights of another kind? And, uh, in, and in some way, uh, Sovereign Forest became step by step uh, a way to answer these questions. The, the exhibition began to take shape and friends and colleagues joined in and added uh, through other forms of evidence, through texts, through stories, through books, through uh, and so on. And so through seeds, through rice. And so in a, in a way, uh, another way of seeing, another way of analyzing this crime and possibly another way of understanding the scale of it.
1: And now we'll listen to an excerpt from The Sovereign Forest. Whereas these films had already been completed when we showed them in Sharjah, this time you're making a new film for SB15. Let's hear more about that after the break. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with filmmaker and artist Amar Kanwar about the project for the 15th Sajjah Biennial. A little bit about the film for our listeners. For SB15, Amar has worked on a seven-channel film installation called The Peacock's Graveyard, which speaks to this edition's title, Thinking Historically in the Present. The project turns to folklore and traditional forms of storytelling and comments on the current climate of totalitarianism and violence. Amar, this film seems to tell stories within a story across multiple channels. Can you tell us about the work and describe it for our listeners?
0: Prior to the COVID lockdowns and the coming of this pandemic, one of the things that I was like, you know, with the earlier work that I'd done, such a morning about a professor who retreats uh, and quits his job and looks for another way to live, to reconfigure politics. And in a certain way, that was what was continuing uh, in my mind. Uh, when I began working on this, uh, the work that we're showing at the Sharjah Valley. And one of the things that I think COVID did to all of us, it made us, you know, apart from the sorrow and the pain of losing so many people, it also made us understand, or at least for a while understand, uncertainty of your basic existence and the, uh, and the fact that death suddenly becomes real possibility. And that's something that we all lived with. And, and in, in a way, the Peacock's Graveyard is about that. It's about reconfiguration. But it's also, I think, uh, you know, people with deep empathy also having uh, a severe desire for vengeance. Uh, and in some way, uh, you know, this constellation exists in all of us, uh, in, our, in ourselves. So in a sense, the Peacock's Graveyard is about are trying to find a way to enter into this inner self and to speak to this inner self, which is contradictory, which is beautiful and vicious at the same time. It tells stories that connect to death in many different ways. You look at the death of different individuals, while it's interconnecting these different deaths, it's doing this almost like a performance. So the Peacock's Graveyard, sometimes to me, even when I was making it, uh, you know, I kept paring down, I kept removing things bit by bit over a period of time until we ended up with something like a performance of, of, of images and little stories, fables. And I think give you an insight into not just the political climate uh, that we are uh, facing, but more the, an insight of, you know, how does one find ourselves uh, and how does one respond to this in our inner selves. Um, These are seven channels, seven projections uh, with, I think, uh, five stories uh, within the Peacock's Graveyard.
1: You mentioned uh, using different materials such as folklore and interviews. Um, Could you tell us about how the diverse visual or audio elements drew you to choose this format?
0: Many years back, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to see and learn a little bit about uh, traditional classical dance, uh, folk dances or folk theater share oral narratives and stories uh, of various uh, indigenous uh, local, unwritten, unscripted stories and epics uh, one of the things you find uh, when you hear this I and mean, when you go back into into these uh, traditional forms, uh, you realize that of course they are extremely sophisticated. they offer uh, insights that are very hard to come by and they can transit multiple spaces, they can transit multiple times seamlessly without a contradiction. And that kind of fluidity uh, and complexity uh, and simplicity uh, is, is uh, so beautiful, so potent and so powerful that uh, once you dip into that space, uh, it becomes very hard to speak in any other way because it becomes so close to what real life uh, actually seems to be in 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 the present and even in the mind, actually. It was kind of normal and natural for me to start to end up here and to start researching and talking, basically talking to as many people as I could about the political situation, but actually about the, this the ethical question, about the contradictions that lie within us, about the question of violence, about the way to respond to this. And in just that hearing and telling, I found a way to actually write these stories.
1: In your recent works, a theme that I've noticed is the radical potential of turning inward and contemplating. Could you talk a little bit more about this?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it that if you want to you know, go somewhere uh, or if you want to look outside, uh, uh, you can't look outside and you can't go somewhere if you don't go somewhere inside. It, it works quite fascinatingly, you know, the more you look inside, the clearer the outside becomes. In a certain way, even the way that I've started to film over the last several years has been to create these spaces where one could slow down, one could stop, uh, one has the space for reflection. But more than that, uh, you know, we, are, we, find, we, we should be able to find ourselves in a narrative that has multiple embedded submerged narratives inside it so that you can you can stay you can stay there and you you don't need to uh, configure and uh, come to a conclusion or know what it means uh, immediately and it just uh, actually allows you to search search inwards and they could be quite um, you know they could be political works they could be quite strong and harsh and so on but they Still put you into a zone of uh, uh, contemplation
1: that was going to my next question, talking about your films being so charged with emotional and political intensity, but yet you continue to imbue them with hope and how do you do that
0: I don't know how I do that, but I do know that i I meet uh, and I have met and I keep meeting people just like I was referring to earlier about uh, students and and the Burmese people, uh, I keep meeting people who are living in extremely difficult circumstances, facing a lot of violence and pain and suffering. And in the midst of that, uh, I see them finding not just a way to resist it, but actually finding a way to uh, resist it with joy, with strength, with, uh, with high spirits as well. In a way, it's something that has attracted me uh, and I've learned a lot from it. And I think that's what uh, comes in uh, into my work. uh, It's not about criticizing somebody. It's not about fighting. It's not about making a point. It's about uh, living with strength and creating with strength and hope. Uh, And and I think they, they both are the same thing for me. And apart from that, I think just personally, I will... I'm very easily inspired and optimistic Mm -hmm. personally, even though I may sound quite grim, but I'm quite (laughs) quite cheerful and happy about life.
1: Well, Okwi Anwazor, who conceived of this edition of the Biennial uh, when I invited him in 2018, originally selected your film, A Night of Prophecy for Documenta in 2002, Documenta 11, and in a way introduced your practice into the wider contemporary art world. I remember... When we were in Addis Ababa and I spoke to you about the Lahore Biennial I was curating and mentioned how Okwi thought it was really important for me to include a season outside. And we uh, spoke a lot about Okwi during that time. For that reason and because of your closeness to Okui, it was really important for you to be part of this biennial. I was wondering if you'd like to share something about your professional and personal relationship with Okui, or perhaps a memory.
0: The first time I met him here in Delhi and I think he uh, he saw this uh, mistrust in my eyes, I think, of him yes. and of all the other friends and colleagues that had come along with him. And uh, I never said anything, but he saw that I was like uh, f- full of suspicion and mistrust. And I left uh, after the discussion and meeting, I left with that feeling as well. He raced out of the room and... Uh, you know, caught me down the corridor just before they, you know, left. And, and this was the first time I had ever met him. And he raced down and without saying anything, he just, you know, he put his arms around me. He had really long arms. Mm-hmm. He put his arms around me and he said, uh, please uh, trust us and we are real and we are going to stay here. And And that's all I request you. just trust us. And I had not said anything, but it, I guess even he sensed it. Uh, and, and I think that was such a beautiful moment for me. I mean, you know, we, we just connected immediately. Sometime later, I think again, he's, he sensed uh, we met somewhere else and we were in, again in, a large, in, in the presence of a large number of people. And I think I was looking quite troubled about something. And he sensed that. I think he, was, he also knew what I, what I was troubled about. And he again came up to me and quite beautifully, I mean, you know, usually men don't do that, you know, but quite beautifully. He just, he uh, he hugged me and he whispered something in my ear, uh, very endearingly and nicely. And he said, said, don't listen to anybody. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Just that's the only thing I would say to you. Just don't listen to anybody and just do what you want to do and what you think is right. And it's just the way that he made these connections, and the way he would kind of come into you and, and connect. Uh, these are two. You know, I mean, there are many other memories, but these are very beautiful two early moments with him.
1: Thank you for sharing these memories.
0: It's hard to believe. Yeah, it's 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 hard to believe that he's not. It's just not fair that he's not around.
1: Yes. And I think um, we'll all be thinking of him as we come together for the biennial, and uh, through many of his friends and colleagues, for sure. Yes. Thank you for uh, for sharing these memories with us.
0: Thank you for inviting me, no, and, and it's a celebration. So
1: yes, for sure. Thank you for joining us on Biennial Bites, Amar, and thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view Amar's works online, click on the link in the show notes. To see them in person, please visit Alvaid Medical Clinic and we'll see you there.